This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, it's, a, it's a gift for me to be able to uh, be with you this morning and to lead us through God's Word. I want to give you a couple of updates. First of all, a few weeks ago, we prayed for um, Ricardo and Holly, knowing that Holly's mom was in the ICU and she was very sick, and we, we prayed as a congregation for her. And I want to report to you that she is home. She's doing well. God answered our prayers healed, and healed her. So we are deeply grateful to God for that. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is today is uh, Megan Kearns' last day. Megan Kearns is someone that we uh, support and send out to China, and she's been around for a year. And so uh, she'll be around today. If you see her, give her a high five, pray for her as she gets sent out to, to China. Um, all right, the fan club over here. Well, as I said, my name is uh, Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. My role is the pastor of communities, uh, theological education, and cultural engagement, which is so broad and ambiguous that I can basically do whatever I want, and it fits under the, that title there. But the reality is, is I get the opportunity to do a lot of things uh, in the area of vocational discipleship, talking about a theology of work and helping a lot of you work through career decisions you're making through the lens of the gospel, how to be more intentional, how to engage it with more of a, a robust missional mindset. And so with this being Ricardo's last week out of town, it was an, an open Sunday, so we thought it would be good if I preached on a theology of work today. I'm going to be doing that through Genesis 1 and 2, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up your Bible to the very front of the book. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. You'll have some people walking down the aisle who can give you a Bible. <clears throat> As we get started today, I want to tell you a little story. You see, a few years ago, I lived in Turkey, and I had the ridiculously good opportunity to work as a basketball scout. Yes, I got to watch basketball all day and get paid for it. And I didn't get paid a lot for it, but still, I got paid for it. And I lived in Turkey, and I watched basketball, and it was a lot of fun. And if you don't know anything about Turkish basketball and the Turkish Basketball League, it's just a step below the NBA. So anyone, any of your favorite teams, the worst few players on, on that team, the guys at the end of the bench who look bored all the time, they're about one or two years away from going to Turkey and being the star of that team and making millions of dollars and those sorts of things. So... In Turkey, we had people like Allen Iverson there and Dominique Wilkins, and it was a lot of fun. And sometimes people would come to know the Lord, and sometimes there would be believers there, and I'd get to connect with them and, and walk with them and, and those sorts of things. Well, one guy, a guy who sticks out to me, is a guy who deeply loved God. He was a basketball player, and he was good. He had mastered the craft of shooting a basketball. When you saw the ball roll off the tips of his fingers, it was a thing of beauty, and you knew that it was going to the bottom of the net most of the time. He's six foot nothing. Wasn't very fast, wasn't very strong, but he's a leader, and he had mastered his craft. Now, 
he was playing in a city that wasn't a very big city, and they didn't have a lot to do, so everyone came out to the basketball game. It was a, 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 quite a stretch from the days when he played for the Lakers and the Suns, but it was an incredible moment. People packed out the gyms. Thousands of people cheered as loud as they could, and the day that I got to see him play live, I went to go visit him, and it was the, the final game, the elim- elimination game of a playoff game. It was the seventh game in a series, and he dominated. He hit about eight three-pointers, and it came down to the final moments of the game. If they win that game, they would advance to the next round of the playoffs. There were seven seconds left. You knew that he was going to take the shot. The other team knew it as well. They put this big six-foot-seven guy to defend him who's just foaming at the mouth, just a tough guy, tough defender. And they inbounded to my friend Joe, and he dribbled right, and he was double teamed. Then he crosses over to the left. Five, four, three, two. He leans in. He's way behind the three-point line, falls back, throws up the shot. Nothing but net. They were down by two. Three-pointer won the game. They're going the next level of the playoffs. The crowd goes wild. He's being celebrated. People are going crazy. Joy was in that stadium, right? But he was a follower of Christ. And in his honest moments, he would sit and wrestle. He'd open his Bible and he'd say, God, I want to do something significant for you. I want to do work that matters. Should I become a pastor or a missionary? What does this game of basketball have to do with anything? Does it matter? Does my work matter? And he asked that question, and I know that many of you in this room resonate with that question. You're asking the question, does my work as an insurance salesman matter? Does my work as a janitor matter? Does my work as an IT manager matter? And you know this is an important question because the average worker spends 90,000 hours over the course of their lifetime working. You spend more time at work than with your family. You spend more time at work than church. And does it, so does it matter? And that's the question I want to address today. Why does work matter? And I want us to look into Scripture and to get the the beginning of a theology of work that shows why it's important, why God cares about it, how it fits into the kingdom. Now, if you know me, you know that I'm passionate about this subject. I write about this subject. I, I speak sometimes about this subject. And when I sat down to prepare this sermon, I wrote down just about 25 points of theological reflection on work. But mercifully, I'm going to give you three today, okay? So know that this isn't going to be the complete theology of work. Certain things will be missing. Certain things won't be emphasized. But for the sake of time, I'm going to give you three points about work. Why does work matter? Now, many people answer this question in different ways in incomplete ways that have a kernel of truth, but that don't fully jive with the breadth of the biblical story. Let me give you some of the ways people answer this question. 
They say fulfilling work matters. If I get to do creative work that makes me happy, that uses my gifts, that has prestige, that has a little bit of money to it, and fulfills me, that work matters. And I meet with a lot of people who want to leave their job because it's not a fulfilling job. And while there is something really good about working in a career that, that uses your gifts and abilities, that is not the heart of the biblical story. Some people say sacred work matters. So it matters if you're a missionary or a pastor or if you start a cool nonprofit with an awesome hashtag that's going to end homelessness or something like that. That work matters. But it's only the sacred work that matters. Some people say, look, stop asking all these questions. It's just straightforward. Work pays the bills. I got to feed my family. So I have to work, it pays the bills, and that's it. Stop with all your fancy theology stuff. That's why I go to work, pay the bills. Some people say, and by the way, it's good to pay the bills, and that is a, a good thing. And then number four, some people say work is a platform for evangelism. It, it matters because it gets you around people to where you can share the gospel. And while that is true, that is not nearly as robust as it should be. And oftentimes when we take that approach, we end up doing pretty poor work and kind of being manipulative at work, like sticking the tracks in the, in the toilet paper and stuff like that, because you can't find any other meaning for your work. You see... Our work will never be a good platform for evangelism until it's more than a platform for evangelism, until the work itself has deep meaning. And so as we look at Genesis 1 and 2 today, I'm going to give you three points that answer the question, why does work matter? Number one, that God is a productive worker. Number two, that we were created to work. And number three, that we are called to work. Now before we dive in, I want to just give you my definition of work. Work is the cultivation of God's world. It's basically going into God's world and making something of it. Being productive, the productive activity in his world. So I'm differentiating between work and employment. So for instance, a stay-at-home mom works, but may not necessarily be getting paid for it. But that's still work. The work you do in the evenings of parenting and your work of volunteering and, and, and being involved in, in civic society, that is work as well. So work is the cultivation of God's wor world. And I believe that that definition really comes out of Genesis 1 and 2. So let's start with the first point. Why does work matter? Number one, God is a productive worker. Work matters first and foremost because God is a worker. God is the one that gives meaning to work and it is a part of who he is. When we open up the Bible, the very first thing that we see, God's first impression that he's trying to make with us, the first thing he's communicating to us is that he himself is a worker. And that gives dignity to work. Genesis 1.1, the first words of our Bible say, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This doesn't say, 
in the beginning, God was chilling. It doesn't say, in the beginning, God looked over to you and said, hey, you get to work. It says, in the beginning, God created. God worked. And he creates this masterpiece, the masterpiece of, of light and darkness and atmosphere and oceans and land and water and vegetation, of sun and moon and stars, of avian life and aquatic life, land animals. And then on the sixth day, he creates the crown of his creation, human beings, to work with him in the world. And then on day seven, he rests. Not because he's tired. The Sabbath wasn't because God needed a break after six days of work. Day seven is so that God could delight in the good work of his hands over and over and over in the chapter. What does it say about the work of God? That it is good. God is a worker who is good and productive and creates a world with function and beauty and that is constantly adding more value with every seed that hits the ground, a new tree that is developed. God is a worker. Now, when we start talking about Genesis 1 and 2, I know a lot of people start to think of age of the earth debates, like Ken Ham and Bill Nye and how old is the earth and those sorts of things. And at, at Redemption, we have an op we are open-handed with that. We have some people who are old earth people, some people who are young earth people. But make, let me make something really clear. These two chapters were not written for Bill Nye and Ken Ham and those debates. These chapters were written for something very specific to show us the order of God's world with God as the center, the unique dignity of humans as image bearers to do good work in his world, and the goodness of creation. And not every creation narrative, creation myth of that day believed that. There were actually Babylonian and Canaanite creation narratives that said something very different. And Genesis 1 and 2 is written in such a way to counter those things. Because those creation narratives portrayed humans as slaves to the gods. That the gods were lazy and they wanted to have servants to do something in the world so they created humans. The implication of that being that work is not good. Work is something to be delivered from. But Genesis 1 and 2 steps up and goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with those and says, no, that is not the way of the world. Work is good. Humans have dignity in their work, first and foremost, because of what it shows that God is a worker. It uses words to describe God that are work words like create, speak, separate, command, and even in verse 6, this word that has the connotation of fashioning and making. And in Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3, it explicitly repeats the phrase over and over again about God's work to show that God is a worker. It says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And we see that in scripture, 
when things are repeated, it's trying to create emphasis. This isn't a four-year-old kid just repeating themselves over and over and over again. This is scripture saying, take note of this. His work, his work, his work. Work is dignified. It matters. It's good. Because the first thing we see in the Bible is that God is a worker. Tim Keller says this. He says, in the beginning, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were created to do, but beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have had a more exalted inauguration. The first work we see in the world is not humans, but the work of God. And what kind of worker is he in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, God is the great architect who perfectly designs the world with function and beauty. But he's also the great construction worker who actually builds the world. Verse 6 uses the word making or fashioning. God fashioned the world using the language of a craftsman. God is the interior designer who created the full spectrum of colors and paints them across skies and flowers and people. God is the great auditor and quality control manager who looks over his creation and declares it good and good and good. God is the great entrepreneur whose enterprise called creation is sustainable and constantly creating more value. Before Elon Musk or Steve Jobs ever entered entered the world, God was the entrepreneur. Before anyone thought of green energy, God created this little technology called the sun. God is the great farmer before all farmers whose original work is behind every morsel of food that we eat. The heirloom tomatoes are of his craftsmanship, and he's the farmer behind all farmers. He's the pioneer of the hospitality industry who created a world that's perfect for human flourishing before we ever got there and we arrived. And he said, welcome, this is for you. God is the administrative assistant, the great administrative assistant, who doesn't do the work of keeping our calendar, but did the work of creating our calendar, creating time, and ordering the world with days and seasons and months and years. God is the ultimate manager, who doesn't just make things and leave them alone, but as the Spirit hovers over the earth, sustains them and keeps them running. Beyond Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God is the great worker as well. All throughout Scripture, we see God is the great security guard who promises to protect his people, the doctor who heals us, the nurse who comforts us, the maintenance man who sustains the earth. He's the server who washes our feet, the teacher as the source of all knowledge, and the general contractor who will one day renew and restore all of creation. Why does work have dignity? Why does it matter? Because God is a worker, a productive worker, and he is good. In all of his majesty and glory, he's a God who gets his hands dirty. Point number two, we Humans were created to work. In our day, we often think that we, or we act in a way that we were created for leisure. And leisure is good. Rest is good. But we were created for a day of rest and six days of work. We were created for it. But before God ever commissions Adam and Eve 
to do any work, he first addresses their identity. You see, humans have a unique identity in creation, and that's the identity of image bearers. Look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It says, And then God said, this is on the sixth day, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God is finishing creation by making something very good. The Bible calls it very good. Not just good, but very good. By what Abraham Kuyper says is God crowning creation with humanity. That's made in his image, has this unique identity. And it says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see God saying, your unique identity is as an image bearer. Male and female, reflecting God's image, showing what God is like. And God blessed them and pronounced his favor over them and told them to get busy with the work of making babies and filling the earth with all kinds of good culture and those sorts of things. That's what's happening here. This is often what theologians call the cultural mandate. But the work flows from identity. What, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, it doesn't mean that we are God or that we are little gods but it also means that we are distinct from the rest of creation, unique in some way that we resemble God, that we're like mirrors that show what God is like through the attributes that we share with him. We're creative, we're wise, we use language, we work. Also, you can think of it as like a self-portrait. See, what kings used to do in those days is they used to put statues in cities that they would conquer of themselves to show that this is my city and I am the Lord over this city. Well, what it's talking about here is that God fills the earth with his image bearers, people that look like him, these portraits of him to say this is what I'm like and this is my world. So in some way, what it means to be an image bearer is that someone should be able to look at us and see something that resembles God, something about God. And why does God put them to work? Because God is on the great mission of filling the world with the knowledge of his glory. But how do you see the glory of God? God's invisible. How do we describe God without an analogy or a reference? How do we know what creativity is, faithfulness, wisdom, protection, without having some reference for it in the world? And the reference that God puts in the world is human beings and the work of their hands. How does God show his creativity? Well, he shows his creativity through the elegant and precise architecture of someone like Jack DeBartolo at Redemption Arcadia. How does God put his faithfulness on display? Well, he puts his faithfulness on display through people like Andy Carrillo, who works 
28 years at the same insurance office, showing up day after day in the same neighborhood with the same people and serving them. When you look at him, you see a hint of the faithfulness of God. How do we know that God is a protector? How do we have an analogy for protection? Well, there's a girl named Krista McDaniel who works with my daughter who uh, is on the autism spectrum and often can run away and put herself in dangerous situations. But Krista is so good with her and protects her. And when you see Krista do her work well, you see the protection of God. With every mother or father who knows their child well, knows them individually and parents them accordingly, we get a hint of the wisdom of God. How does the world come to know and see and behold the majesty of our incredible God? It's through the work of your hands, through the work of your minds. It's through your work of image bearing and filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Few people will ever read the Bible. Few people will ever pick up a book about God. Very few people, including some of you, will pick up a systematic theology and read about the attributes of God. But you are living letters sent into the world called to dramatize the brilliance of what God is like through your work. Now, I referenced evangelism earlier, and I said that, that evangelism will, that, that work will never be a good platform for evangelism until it's something more than a, than a platform for evangelism. But I tell you what, if we fill the city with people who work well, who master their craft, who enjoy it deeper because they know that they've gone to work with God, the world will ask questions about the God that we know and that we love. You see, I had an experience like this recently. Um, just to be clear, just so you know, I am a Christian. Like, shouldn't be a surprise. They shouldn't let me up here if I'm not. But I saw somebody's work that was so good that I almost wanted to become a Christian again. I was so encouraged by this person. Let me tell you this story. About two years ago, we bought a house. My wife and I, we bought a house. We, we love it. But one day we started to no, notice something a little peculiar, a crack in the ceiling and a crack coming along this beam that sits right over the place where our daughter plays. At first we kind of said, well, you know, maybe that's a normal thing, right? No, that's not a normal thing. <laughs> so we called someone to take a look at it. We had a few contractors take a look at it, and, and they all said the same thing that the person who had sold us the house didn't take their work seriously. They ripped us off. They didn't have a licensed contractor take out a load-bearing wall, and therefore they didn't do it correctly, and therefore our home, our daughter who played under the very spot where the whole weight of the house was holding, there was a potential that it could collapse and harm us through the poor work of someone else. But there was one contractor who told us the same thing everyone did, but he said this. He said, you do not have to hire me as the general contractor. You do not have to hire me. You can go with someone else, but I am not leaving this house until I build a temporary wall right here because I cannot stand the thought of you and your family being in harm's way. I'm not asking for permission. I'm telling you what I'm going to do. 
I will even pay for the wood and the labor and everything. You don't have to pay me a dime, but you cannot let me leave (laughs) until I, I do this. And I was moved by that kind of work. And he did a great job. He built that wall. And we did end up going with him (laughs) as the contractor. And his work was excellent. And as he was working, I got to know him a little bit. And I could tell that he he was starting to point to the reason why he did such great work. And eventually, he ended up telling me that he goes to Redemption Gilbert. <laughs> and, I, and I told him, I'm a pastor at Redemption Tempe. And it was this rich moment where the good work of this guy almost made a pastor at Redemption Tempe reconvert to Christ because of how good that work is. <laughs> now, theologically, that's not correct, but it was really good work. <laughs> hey, what if we filled the city With work like that, people would ask about the hope that is in us. So why does work matter? Because it reflects the image of the brilliant God that we love and that we worship. And this this brings us to point three, that we are called to work. That God explicitly calls human beings to work, both explicitly and implicitly. When we see Genesis 1 and 2, we see God created a masterpiece, right? Like, just think of the the crisp apples that you've bitten into and the beautiful canyons and the cool water. He did such a good job. He created a masterpiece. And what we usually like to say is that in Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything. But did he? Did God leave something out? Did he not create something in Genesis 1 and 2? Now, you may think I'm about to go into a heresy direction. I'm not. But let me give you an example of something that God did not create in Genesis 1 and 2. Omelets. God did not create omelets in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve didn't show up, and there was an omelet waiting for them. Nor was there a house, a car, an iPad, clothes. There wasn't, uh, there, there wasn't a park. There weren't buildings. God showed restraint in creation to not make every person that would ever be made and to not make everything that would ever be made so as to create space for us and invite us into the work of work so that he would continue to create, but he was going to create through the hands of humans. God didn't give us an omelet. He gave an egg. People ask, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Wrong question. The right question is chives, peppers, cheese. What do we do with that egg? (laughs) And God hid all of the beauty of creation, all of the good things we experience into his world. He hid the potential in the world. God hid the the omelet in the egg and said, go find it and cultivate it and draw it out. God created the maple tree, but invited us to make the delicious syrup for pancakes and the wood for a finely crafted guitar. God made the metals, but but invited the architect and the contractor to use them to create a beautiful and enduring building that lasts for a century. God didn't, didn't create houses, didn't create shovels, didn't create boats or bicycles until the human hands came along that he would use to create them. James K.A. Smith says this. He says, when God calls creation into being, he announces that it's very good. 
but he doesn't announce that it's finished. Creation doesn't come into existence ready-made with schools and museums and farms. Those are all begging to be unpacked. But unfurling that potential is going to take work. And that work is the labor of culture, of cultivation, of unpacking. In other words, it's the work of work. And not only is it implicit in the passage, it's explicit. Why did God create humans, Adam and Eve? Genesis 2.15 is explicit. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That work isn't a byproduct of just how do we function in the world to do what we really want to do. God didn't put humans on the, on the earth just to go to worship services over and over. He didn't put them on the earth just to, to surf on the awesome waves that he created or to go on nature walks, which are all good. Those are for the Sabbath. But he put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. Before sin even entered the world, we were called to work. It's part of his mission of caring for his world. He gave us that role. And there's two words here. Uh, there's two words. There's the word work and the word keep. And each of these has unique meaning. The word work is the Hebrew word abad. And it's an agricultural word that has the, the connotation of creativity. Of not creating something from nothing, but drawing out and creating from a garden or from a plot of soil. So we see God commending creative work to humans. But also the word shamar is the word to keep, which is about protecting and preserving and maintaining. And in our world today, where we tend to make idols out of the creative class, that the, the Steve Jobs of the world get put on a pedestal, this gives a little bit of balance that the work of administrative assistance and quality control managers and, and maintenance men and, and, and landscapers is also a part of what God created us to do. We're called to the creative work and the sustaining work explicitly. And so whether it's in living rooms or in waiting rooms, skyscrapers or scraped knees, the sound of a symphony or the sound of a jackhammer, God is the great king of creation who has given us a little plot of the garden that we are to work and to keep. Think about this. What is your garden? What is the part of the world that God has given you stewardship over, that you are to draw the potential out of, that you are to care for? You see, if you're a server at a restaurant, the ten tables that you are given are God's tables, and that is the garden that you are called to cultivate as you serve people. If you're a teacher, know that your classroom and the brains of those children in the classroom, they belong to God, and that is the garden that God has given you to work and to keep. If you're a stay-at-home mom, as you look out over the living room and you see your children, that is God's garden. And he has given it to you to work and to keep it. It belongs to him. And he has invited you to work with him in drawing the potential out of his world. So what is your garden? What do you do? Do you teach? Do you fix things? All of the, those things. The, the homes you steward and the work that you do and the people around you and your role in the community 
God has given you the work of gardening and has put you there to be his extension of cultivating it. So the three points. Why does work matter? Number one, because God is a productive worker. Number two, because we were created to work. And number three, because we are called to work. But let me finish with this. I know that a lot of you are frustrated with work. It's hard. We get back pain. We have manipulative bosses. We have idols. We have monotonous, painful, boring work. And so much of that, all of that, comes from this reality that comes in the chapter after Genesis 1 and 2, the fact that sin has entered the world and made work painful and broken and hard. In that passage, it says that there will be thorns and thistles when you try to work the ground. And when you try to have families, labor, childbirth will be painful. Pain has now entered the world as a part of the curse and as a part of the fall. And so we're not living in paradise in Genesis 1 and 2. We are gardening in Babylon and the broken world of idols where it's very hard and very dangerous. And I just, let me tell you, I had a Genesis 3 weekend. It's ironic that I'd preach on Genesis 1 and 2, maybe providential, preach on Genesis 1 and 2, but I would experience 3 this weekend. See, I have this beautiful vision for my front yard. I want it to be sustainable, environmentally friendly, and provide healthy food for my family. And there is no doubt that I work harder on my front lawn, my front yard and my backyard, than all of my neighbors. Like, I'm always out there working. But it's not going too well. I put raised bed gardens in in the front of my house so that we would grow food that would be healthy for my daughter. Well, if you live in Tempe, you know that we have this little thing called cats. We have cats everywhere. And I think I have a neighbor who has like 15 plus cats and they've decided that my gardens are the greatest toilet in the world. So instead of gardens in my front yard, I essentially have cat toilets in my front yard. And I've had to pull out all the plants because cat poop can be kind of dangerous. You don't want your kid. So my intention to have healthy food actually became kind of dangerous for my daughter. So then I put rocks in the front yard to so I wouldn't have to use as much water. But then some sustainability major says, you know that increases the urban heat load, right? So I'm like, oh man. (laughs) So then I decide I'm gonna let the grass grow up through the rocks, and then I'm just gonna trim it with a weed whacker. But the problem is I get a weed whacker, and my daughter who has autism with sensory issues, she can't stand the sound, and there's no time when she's not at home and, and I'm at home. So I, I can't find time to do the weed whacking so it grows up in these awkward ways. It looks ugly. And I came home this weekend with a citation or a warning from the city saying that I'm like a slumlord now, right? <laughs> with the citation in hand, I thought, well, at least I've got chickens in my backyard and that's working out. I went to the backyard. The chickens had kicked the door shut to their coop. The water was on the inside of the coop and two dead chickens just staring at the water on the outside of the coop. I cut my hand, see the (laughs) band-aid? My back is sore, and I bought a truck so that I could do all this yard work and everything like that. Yesterday, had a blowout on the freeway and spent the whole evening dealing with that. So I had a Genesis 3 weekend. 
And I know that a lot of you resonate with that with your work. You say, you had a Genesis 3 weekend, but I had a Genesis 3 job. (laughs) And sin has indeed impacted every part of the world to where now the, the world of work has become a world of idols. It's become a world of pain. It's become a world of frustration. And that's a real part of what we do. Now, let me say this, that there's still good in the world because of the goodness of God's creation and that it perseveres through. Last night, I would not have been able to make it home from the freeway if I didn't have a cell phone or if I didn't have a friend with a car that worked or if we didn't have insurance to take care of of the car. And all of those things are products of the work of humans in that I was experiencing common grace, and we get to be extensions of common grace. But ultimately, it's not common grace that we need. It's the saving, rescuing grace of Jesus. And we end with his work. His work is the work that we need. You see, he's the second Adam, whose work is sufficient where the first Adam failed, and for the failed sons of daughters of Adam and Eve, like you and I are, Jesus is sufficient. His work was sufficient for us. To people who have failed and who are frustrated, he utters the words that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His life was the perfect righteousness, the perfect work that we could not do and is applied to us as we're followers of Christ. When God looks at us, he sees the work of Christ. On the cross, Jesus was crushed for every person who's been crushed by the manipulative words of their boss. Jesus' back was ripped open by a Roman soldier on behalf of those who come home with back pain because of a hard day's work. On the cross, Jesus was rejected on behalf of those who have to come home every day to a spouse and say that their application was rejected again and again, and they can't find a job. On the cross, Jesus was publicly shamed for each person who has tried to put their hands to good work and ended up failing. On the cross, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane to restore the garden that was lost in creation through sin. And three days after the cross, Jesus was resurrected, pointing to a future day when God will restore and make all things new, an eternity of working with God without pain. And if you're a follower of Christ, let's look to that day. And if you are not a follower of Christ, I would ask, what meaning do you have? How do you explain both the beauty of your work and the futility of your work apart from this great Savior. See, Jesus died on Friday and he was resurrected on Sunday and that means everything for Monday. So as you go to work tomorrow, go with people who know that you're not trying to earn your way, but Jesus has earned it for you and work in such a way that gives glory to him and work out of gratitude for him, showing that the work on Friday and the work on Sunday has transformed your work on Monday. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for my friends in this room here. You've created them. They are your image bearers. 
And Lord, I ask that just as you blessed Adam and Eve, that you would bless the work of their hands. And we thank you that you have not only blessed them, but that their blessing is to be a blessing to others. And Lord, when we experience the curse, the curse of the fall, the pain of work, help us turn towards you and know that you have absorbed the pain of this broken world. And the cross, in your, in your flesh, and then through the resurrection, you point to a day of renewal and renewed work. Give us hope for that day, God. Bless us today that we would be a blessing tomorrow on Monday for your namesake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.